This one is most definitely driven by me. Some listeners will know of my fascination with Nicola de la Haye, the woman who defended Lincoln Castle against rebels and the French alike in 1217. And Derek and I were talking, and we were wondering how much of John's last year and a bit is known. Everyone knows about Magna Carta being sealed in June 1215. Well, most, almost everyone at Runnymede. But that is often where the story stops. And Derek and I were asking, what happened next? Well, what happened next was the First Barons' War. Magna Carta was supposed to be a peace treaty between John and the Barons to prevent war. But as soon as John had signed it, or rather sealed it, he wrote to the Pope asking for it to be annulled. And by the time the Pope had sent back the annulment of the Charter, the country was already at war and John was besieging Rochester Castle in Kent. I feel a bit like Baldrick here. I'm tempted to ask the question, how did the war start? For me, I mean, as you said, everyone knows about Magna Carta. After Magna Carta, I have to admit, my knowledge is almost zero. So I'm I'm assuming there might be somebody who doesn't know what Magna Carta was or isn't too clear about it. So is it worth us just clarifying that to start with? Yes, certainly. Magna Carta is actually known as the Great Charter, and it wasn't actually named Magna Carta until 1217, when the Charter of the Forest was issued, and suddenly they needed a name for the original charter, which was the 1215 Charter of Liberties. Now, the Magna Carta was supposed to right the wrongs, basically. Everything in it, there's 63 clauses And they cover practically everything. They cover inheritance, weights and measures, the privileges of the church, the freedom of the City of London, justice, clauses 39 and 40, guarantee the right that no free man will be imprisoned without justice and that no one can sell or deny justice. So practically everything is covered. Forests are covered, the appointment of sheriffs and justices. The idea was to right the wrongs that had been developing over the years to make sure that there was regulation and oversight. And it basically brought the king within the law rather than above the law. There's 25 barons who actually brought this to the king. And we know, we basically know the names of the 25 major movers because they had um, a security clause put into it which said that these 25 barons would oversee John's actions and um, laws to make sure that they were fair. So we know who the rebels were because we have these 25 barons who had their names actually put into the Magna Carta and they're called the enforcers of Magna Carta. So were these 25, do you think they they were they were they were a majority 
or the most important barons or were they just a, a splinter group? They were the main movers and shakers of the time in the opposition to John. Some barons never betrayed John, like William Marshall and Nicola de la Haye and Gerard de Campbell, but he died just before the war started. Some actually, like, interestingly, though William Marshall never changed sides, William Marshall's son is named as one of the 25 enforcers. And you have people like William de Mowbray, who the Mowbrays would later become the Dukes of Norfolk, Roger Bego, the Earl of Norfolk, and his son Hugh. There's the Earl of Oxford, the Earl of Essex, the Earl of Hertford, Gilbert de Clare, who would later become Earl of Gloucester. So it was the barons against the king, but some of the barons stayed with the king and some opposed the king. But it was those who thought themselves badly treated by John who rebelled. And some of them were, you know, John wasn't, he was a medieval king. And I think it's hard to say you feel sorry for John, but in some ways I do. He did bad things, yes, but he also inherited a situation that wasn't actually sustainable. Henry II, John's father, had built this massive empire that stretched from the Scottish border to the Spanish border, included England, Normandy, Aquitaine, Anjou, Brittany, everything, you know, it was this massive landmass. And unless you were as energetic as Henry and good at, in war, it was not sustainable. And with the French king, Philip II, actually coming into his own as well and growing up and becoming a soldier and wanting to expand his own borders, because France was very small in these days and most of France was occupied by the English. You look at it from Henry II to Richard I, who spent his entire life fighting to keep hold this together, to John, and you think, I feel for John. I don't think it would have ever, they would have ever been able to keep the whole empire together anyway. It was going to splinter as soon as France flexed its muscles. Funny because when, when you think about the conflict between England and France and so on, you think of the Hundred Years' War, but... It's quite clear, and from, from what you've said, that this Ange of an empire, this empire, for, as you said, from Scotland to Spain, virtually, it needed a, a monarch who was going to be constantly riding across his lands, keeping them, particularly because of the French rivalry, which, which grew with, uh, with Philip, isn't it? Yeah, Philip II. And it was, it was a strange situation as well, because you had John for want of a better word, owned England, and all the barons in England owed fealty to John. In France, John owned Normandy and Aquitaine, and all the barons in Normandy and Aquitaine and Anjou owed fealty to John. The problem then was, though, that Philip, king of France, was John's overlord in France for Normandy and Aquitaine, Philip was John's overlord. Now, when you're a king, this is going to cause problems that you actually have to swear fealty to another king for your lands, because in that land, you're a duke. <laughs> it wasn't actually going to work. And I guess what it means is that there's uncertainty there, which allows individual barons to not exactly do what they like, but to play off one ruler against another and gain perhaps land favours, whatever, by supporting one or the other at a particular moment. Yes, you had it in um, the early 1200s when King John married Isabella of Angoulême. He married Isabella of Angoulême. She had already been betrothed to Hugh IX de Lusignan. 
And Hugh de Lusignan was a bit knocked at the fact that John had basically stolen his bride. So he appealed to his overlord, King Philip, to sort it out. So, you know, they had this, he basically bypassed John, who was his immediate overlord, and went to Philip, who was his eventual overlord. And war started that way. And you see all the time through Normandy and Aquitaine, these little wars starting up because they didn't like what Henry had done, so they went to King Philip. Or they didn't like what John had done, so they went to King Philip. Or they didn't like what King Philip was doing, so they sided with John and later Henry III. Yeah, it was a bit of a mess, really, wasn't it? <laughs> but, I mean, I guess what we, what we have to ask about John is, did he handle it any worse than, say, Henry, or Henry II or Richard I? I think John's problem was he wasn't a natural soldier. He didn't spend his, his life on the battlefield like Richard I did. He wasn't a lover of war. He liked administration and justice, and he, um, he was very good at administration and the legal side of things much better than he was at the military side of things. And the problem was his barons knew he wasn't a great soldier either, so sometimes they refused to go to war with him because they didn't think it was the right time. They also, and I think people forget this, that barons, yes, they owe fealty to John as their king, but they're also looking after themselves, trying to look after themselves at the same time. So you have this situation in 1204, John's lost Normandy, and William Marshall and William de Warren are sent to King Philip of France on an embassy. And while they're dealing with the details between of peace between England and France, they're also making a side deal with King Philip about the fact that they own land in Normandy. So they're trying to make this deal with Philip where they get to keep their lands in Normandy and their lands in England and serve King John, but don't want to upset King Philip. Because in feudal law, the whole idea is if you swear fealty to a king, you owe him soldiers. You know, if he goes to war, he can call on you. When you're owing fealty to King John in England and King Philip in France and John and Philip go to war, what happens if they both ask you for your military duty? You can't fight yourself. So it was a real big problem for the barons and they had to basically make a decision as to where they were going to keep their lands, whether it was England or Normandy. Well, I guess this is, this is, if you like, a kind of unforeseen uh, effect of yes. the Norman Conquest. And, and when we were talking about the anarchy a few weeks ago, again, there is this issue of barons that own land in both Normandy and England. Yeah. And uh, there is a conflict of interest because the two places are not the same. They haven't got the, the same threats <laughs> and so on. So that that whole situation carries on for... Yeah. literally hundreds of years doesn't it and Henry II makes it worse in a way by making the whole area bigger and including Aquitaine and, and Anjou and so on in England's um, in England's lands. What we're talking about really is the ongoing problem of the nature of, of, of the English kingdom and the, and the lands associated with it. Yeah and then when the barons did lose their lands in Normandy a lot of them made deals with other family members, like William de Warren. He had three sisters, and two of them were married to Norman lords. 
So his brothers-in-law basically took over the Warren lands in Normandy and he took over their lands in England. So, you know, getting just a little bit of um, jiggery-pokery sort of thing to make sure they all kept their lands. It was just, I'll look after these ones, you look after those ones, and the kings won't know. <laughs> it shows how important uh, these family ties were yeah. um, throughout, well, throughout the Middle Ages, but, but in this period as well. So basically, after Magna Carta, to go back to Baldrick, how do we get to the point where Magna Carta is sealed and, and everything seems fine to actually having some civil war fighting going on in England? How does, how does the one thing morph into the other? John had spent the last six months trying to deal with these rebels, trying to bring them to the table to negotiate. And um, they'd had meetings at various places in Northampton and at Windsor and things, and they were talking, but then they forced this Magna Carta onto John and made him agree to its clauses. But John saw it as injustice. He was the king. He made the rules. So he then wrote a letter to the Pope saying, basically, they've made me sign this. It's not fair. Can you tell them to stop it? And the Pope issued a bull annulling Magna Carta and excommunicating the Baron's who had forced it upon John. So all those 25 enforcers were then excommunicated, which means they're outside the comfort and protection of the church and nobody is supposed to associate with them. It's a really big thing. <laughs> so they get peed off <laughs> that John's already said is basically ripped up the Magna Carta before the waxed fields have even dried. And they basically retreat to their corners and prepare for war. John then besieges Rochester Castle. It's the first move in the war. And they all, you know, castles start falling left, right and centre. Barons change sides. And then in 1216, the rebel barons decide they could do with a bit more help. And they actually appeal to Philip II and offer him the crown. If you come over and help us, we will give you the crown. And Philip was like, no, you're all right. I'm not bothered. But Philip's son, Louis, turned around and said, OK, I'll do that. Because Louis's got, he's married to John's niece. He's married to John's sister's daughter and comes over to help the rebels. Just to sort of unpick that a bit more. So basically, John's approach is that I'm king. I shouldn't have to mess about with these kind of rights being granted to uh to my barons they should just basically do as they're told and the thing for me is that th these situations happen don't they repeatedly in history where if you look at one king there is not a cat in hell's chance of that king signing magna carta or even being in a situation where he'd be forced to whereas another king who follows like john yeah um is yeah. and and it seems to me that that he has made a lot of mistakes to get to that point. Oh, he has. Otherwise, he wouldn't, he would, they wouldn't be in the situation of forcing him to do that. Yeah, he has. But the thing is, it's, it's the strength of the king as well and the support around him. Because a lot of the things that he did, the injustices that the barons were complaining about, were injustices that had been going on for decades. Henry II yeah. did the same thing. Heck, Richard I sold Northumberland so he could go on crusade. <laughs> you know, not one of them was squeaky clean beforehand. It's that 
bit with a pressure cooker, isn't it? Everything's building up, building up, and suddenly it all explodes. And unfortunately for John, it was his reign in which all the injustices of, years, of decades exploded. And it was like he suddenly had to deal with everything. Whereas Henry II and Richard I, Richard could sweep it under the carpet by going on crusade, getting captured by the German emperor and saying, look, you can't do anything against me because I'm a crusader and the Pope, the Pope protects me. <laughs> so suddenly it's put off and put off until it gets to John's reign. He loses Normandy. The barons go to John, excuse me, you've lost us our lands in Normandy. We want compensation. John only has England then and bits of Aquitaine and that to take taxes from. So he doesn't have as much money as he used to have whilst the country was prosperous and he could take taxes from England and most of France. You know, everybody was happy because he could express his largesse, you know, spread the wealth around a bit. But when he only had England to draw that wealth from, suddenly he couldn't be as generous as he was with his barons. So was the catalyst really the loss of Normandy? Was that the, the nub of it, really? I think so, yeah. I mean, I'm sure some people will disagree with me, but I think it all boils down to he lost Normandy, he lost his continental domains, and suddenly he didn't have the vast empire to pull, pull from, so he had to change things around a bit. And he had a lot of disgruntled barons as a result of losing Normandy. Yes. I mean, you also have, there's that fable that Richard I bankrupted England because of his crusading and then his ransom. That's not true. England was in very good financial condition right the way through the early parts of King John's reign. It was only when he didn't have Normandy to draw revenues from that finances started getting a bit tight. And when finances get a bit tight, as we know these days, unrest soon follows. I don't want to go to war with you because it will cost me money and I can't afford it. Um, the king used to loan money to his barons with no expectation of getting that money back. There's Matilda de Breos, who is the inspiration for, Char for clauses 39 and 40 in the Magna Carta, because she was imprisoned and starved to death in one of John's dungeons. Um, she the the whole situation with the Debreos has started with John giving the county of Limerick to William de Breos for five thousand pounds, and he loaned he didn't he gave him Limerick, and then he loaned him the five thousand pounds as well. So he told him, "You can pay you know pay me back in instalments." In the old days, in the reign of Henry the Sixth and Richard the First, they get the instalments every now and then. They wouldn't be, you know, they wouldn't really worry about it. But when that's the only income you're getting, it matters more. So John went after him then because he hadn't paid back the money that he borrowed. And that started happening with a lot of the barons. John wanted his money back because he wasn't getting the revenues he was used to from Normandy and elsewhere. I just wonder if there's, there is a sort of personal aspect to all this that they maybe feared Henry II. They, they respected Richard's military prowess, but they, they neither feared nor respected John. They didn't respect John. He'd um, had a campaign in Ireland in the 1180s that went well in some places and didn't go so well in others. And apparently he pulled the beards of the Irish lords and they weren't happy about that. He wasn't, he didn't come across as the traditional type of king. He didn't instill discipline 
like Henry II and Richard I did. And he no. had some personal traits that caused him problems with that as well. He was paranoid. He didn't trust people. And he had a vindictive streak where if you crossed him, he went after you until you were dead, basically, you know. He put William de Breos's wife and son in a dungeon and either forgot or ordered that they wouldn't be fed. Okay, so by 1216 then, Magna Carta's sort of been and gone, and John has sort of fired the first shot in the First Barons' War by besieging Rochester Castle. So how does John handle the rest of his his life, as his reign, as it were, uh, in dealing with the barons? He's basically on the move constantly. He sends his son, his eldest son, Henry, to devise us in the West Country for safety. His wife, Isabella of Angoulême, is sent to, I think it was Corfe Castle, and given a company of German soldiers led by a German, somebody to shoot on, um, to protect her or guard her or confine her. You're never quite sure. And he is fighting in the West Country. Louis lands on the Isle of Thanet, I think it was, in Kent, and makes his way around the south of England, arrives at Winchester, where he receives the submission, which must have been really upsetting for John, of William de Warren, Earl of Surrey, who was John's cousin, John's yeah, John's first cousin, William's father, Hamelin Plantagenet, was the illegitimate half-brother of Henry II. And what must have been even worse, William Longspay, who was the Earl of Salisbury, and was John's half-brother. He was John's illegitimate half-brother. And both of them along with the Earl of Arundel, I think it was, swore fealty to Prince Louis. They thought Louis would win. Um, things were looking dire for John. And they were, we think, trying to protect their own rights and their own lands. The problem for them was that Louis actually looked at it as these men who should be fighting for King John had sworn fealty to him. So how could he trust them? to stay on his side if they were so quick to turn against John. So when he starts winning lands and handing them out, he hands, Louis hands them out to his French allies rather than his English allies. Oh, that went down well, I should think. So you've got this, and John's just trying, I mean, he ends up, you, his itinerary is just mind-boggling. One minute he's in Berry trying to work out what to do with the Scots. The next thing he's in Lincoln, having Nicola de la Haye present the keys of the castle to him, telling him she's too old, and him saying, no, nope, you keep the keys because I trust you. Then he's in the Isle of Axome, just north of England, with fire and sword fighting off the rebels. Um, he's got William Marshall fighting for him in the marches in the Welsh borders. So he's basically everywhere and then suddenly he's heading south again he goes over the wash and loses most of the baggage train in the wash including supposedly crown jewels is that do we know if that's i mean i guess we, we don't necessarily know but it, do we think that's that's correct or is that just a, a fable a myth i think that he loses his treasure it sounds more like he lost his personal luggage than 
the crown jewels, basically. I haven't really looked into the full inventory of it. I mean, he did have money with him, travel, but I can't imagine him carrying, mind you, if the French prince had got into London by this point, if he held London, then I suppose it is possible that the jewel, crown jewels were with John to keep them safe. I can see the sense. Well, I wouldn't have been surprised if he'd left them at Devizes or somewhere, yeah. so where they were safe in the West Country rather than yeah. travelling around with him. So yeah, so he's he's on his way back south, gets caught in the wash. Yep. Then falls ill in Lynn in Norfolk, either from eating some bad peaches or poison has been suggested. Can you die from eating bad peaches? Uh, this is a worry, really. I have to be more careful. <laughs> I don't know. I think basically he got camp, what they called in those days, camp fever. You know, he was constantly on the road with an army. Yeah. Uh, he caught dysentery. Uh, whether I don't think there's anything suspicious about that, to be honest. I mean, I know there are suggestions of poison and that, but to me, it's like, well, of course he caught dysentery. The bloke had been on the road with an army for 16 months or something. It, you know, it was only a matter of time. And it was not uncommon, was it? It was It was a very big risk in those days. It killed more people, more soldiers than war did. Yeah. So then you get poor John in October 12, 16, arrives at Newark Castle, which is um, a palace of the Bishop of Lincoln. And on the night of the 18th and 19th of October, two thirds of his household knights had deserted him to Prince Louis. Most of his leading bat barons had deserted him to Prince Louis. I think it was something like a third or a half of England was under Prince Louis rather than King John. You know, his, his kingdom was basically split in two. Oh, at this point, I'm now wondering why we don't have a French king. <laughs> so. Because <laughs> something something must have changed. Then. As my son will tell you, John did the best thing he ever did for England and died. Very unkind. <laughs> but in a way, it was because he actually provided England with a way out. And he put some very capable men in charge and gave the throne to a nine-year-old boy. And you can't blame a nine-year-old boy for the things his dad did. So suddenly there's a chance of a restart and a renewal. They didn't take it straight away. It was a, it was a gradual build-up that you started seeing the rebel barons. Some of them came back to the fold. Some of them stayed rebels until they were actually defeated. But several of them came back gradually once John had died because suddenly there was this nine-year-old boy in charge. So if there's a nine-year-old boy in charge, but obviously, of course, he's not in charge. So who is in charge? William Marshall? You had this great situation where you had, there was a papal legate in England called Guala, who um, he'd been sent by the Pope to advise John, and he did actually help with the administration of the country. And he arranged Henry III's coronation, got a council of the leading loyal barons together, which included William Marshall and Ranulph, the Earl of Chester, um, Hubert de Burg would have been there, but he was being besieged in Dover Castle at the time. All these barons were gathered for the coronation, and Guala got them together and said, look, you need to decide who is going to take control. And William Marshall was the choice. He didn't want to do it. He said he was too old. He was in his 70s, and the Earl of Chester hadn't arrived yet. So he said, 
he was trying to put it off saying, let wait until Chester gets here before we decide. But basically, he was browbeaten into becoming regent, which was the best decision they ever made, I think. He was an accomplished soldier. He was a renowned diplomat and he was respected by everybody. So come of the man, come of the hour. He was definitely the man for the hour. What's interesting is that we're almost talking about a sort of international mediation, aren't we? We're talking about someone who is a representative of an outside power, the papacy, brokering some kind of deal to get a few more barons on side with the new king. So it's we're almost saying, in a sense, had... Uh, what was his name again? Guala. G-U-A-L-A. Guala, yeah. It's It sounds as if if Guala had not been there, things would have ended perhaps very differently. Possibly. I think Guala was the one, he was, because he was an external force, he was also an external authority. Yeah. So he was, you know, he could be seen as being um, unbiased and he was looking for the best interests of England based on what the Pope wanted rather than on petty rivalries or personal ambition. He was there to look after England rather than looking after himself or looking after Marshall or looking after Chester. You know, he was just looking out for the good of England yeah. and England's nine-year-old king. And he'd been trusted by John. He'd been in the country a while, so he knew he knew the politics of the place. And he was a, he was respected. He must have been a very good diplomat himself, because they do seem to have respected him. And he travelled with Marshall in the through the war in the coming months, yes. um, helping where he could. You know, he'd excommunicate the rebels, and he'd. Um, give orders for justice and that he looked after Henry III while the Battle of Lincoln was going on. He stayed with Henry in Nottingham waiting for the outcome. He travelled with the army until they advanced on Lincoln. Um, he was everywhere. <laughs> so we've, we've, we've sort of got the power of the papacy yeah. behind the young Henry III and and uh, Marshall, who is, the, who is the regent. Now we might think, oh, so what? But in medieval times, for a, a papal legate, a representative of the Pope, to be there and to express views and to push people in, this, in a certain direction was a very powerful force, I would have thought. Yes, it was, definitely. As far as the people then were concerned, his views were the views of the Pope, who had his views from God. So, you know, it was, yeah. it was um, a higher authority and one that they had to treat with respect and they had to give weight to his views. But I guess there were still die-hard rebel barons and you've still got Louis there. So how, how was the whole thing resolved? You do still have die-hard rebel barons. Some of them were sticking at it to the end. Dover was in the hands of Hubert de Burgh, but was being besieged by Prince Louis. And Lincoln was in the hands of Nicola de la Haye and was being besieged by English rebels and Prince Louis's deputy, the Comte de Perche. Nicola had been, basically Lincoln had been besieged on and off for a couple of years, but continuously since the death of King John in October 1216 until May 1217. 
and it must have been getting into dire straits within the castle the city of lincoln had sided with the rebels so nicola and her soldiers in the castle were like a little island among the rebels and they had siege the rebels had siege machinery so she the castle was being bombarded all the time food must have been running out although the situation with Lincoln, lincoln castle is a strange castle and it sits on top of a hill the eastern walls and southern walls of the castle are within the city of lincoln and the north and western walls of the castle are outside the city of lincoln because the castle basically abuts the city walls so she wasn't totally isolated there were ways into the castle and ways to get supplies in but at the same time um she was running out of soldiers and she was running out of food and marshall decided that lincoln was the place to make his stand so he ordered a muster at newark for the 17th of may so that they would march on lincoln to relieve the castle he said something like it would be dishonorable not to help so brave a lady so on 20th of may you had this battle called um, the the Second Battle of Lincoln, otherwise known as the Lincoln Fair, supposedly because there was so much looting afterwards. Everybody <laughs> had a hell of a time winning prizes and awards. I guess not everybody had a hell of a time. Well, at least everybody had a hell of a time, but not quite in the same way. <laughs> no, no, but this battle, William had decided that this was the battle that was going to decide everything. Yes. Half the French and rebel army was at Lincoln and he would. this was where he was going to make his stand and stop the war. It didn't quite work out like that. There was still another battle afterwards, but this was the one where the rebels were seen off. You know, there was fighting around the cathedral, through the streets. There was a horrible story of a poor cow who got stuck in the gates at the bottom of um, Lincoln. And the um, rebel army were trying to escape through these gates and this cow was stuck in the gate. So they killed the cow, which didn't actually help because then you couldn't actually move the cow. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's not going to help very much if it's still in the but, gateway. Yeah, the Comte de Perche was killed and I think there was two other barons killed or one of the baron killed. And a lot of soldiers were killed, but the main protagonist, the leaders of both sides came away fairly unscathed but were captured so suddenly the royalists were really happy because they captured all these barons which meant ransoms and louis resistance was crumbling he sent to france for some reinforcements and they came with a gentleman named eustace the monk led the fleet up the coast of kent unfortunately for him hubert de Burgh had um led his the english fleet out to meet him at the, um, the battle of sandwich happened and eustace was killed and the french fleet destroyed so louis was suddenly he'd lost half of his army at lincoln his reinforcements weren't coming and there was no way he could carry on fighting so he had to sue for peace the english wanted him gone so they were quite happy to give away concessions to make sure that louis left and he left with something like 10 or 20 thousand pounds in his pocket all the french nobles who'd been captured and were supposed to be going to be held for ransom were freed without ransom so that they could just go home and Marshall could get England back and start rebuilding 
So you have this situation, there's this poor William de Warren, the fifth Earl of Surrey. He'd bought up a lot of the ransom. He'd paid his own barons to grab all the nobles who'd been captured because he thought, you know, I can get loads of ransoms from all these nobles. And then Marshall said, actually, we're freeing them without ransom. So poor William de Warren was out of pocket. It just shows um, how desperate uh, William Marshall was to, to get the French out. Yeah, yeah. And I guess he was sensible in a way because there's a certain amount of clarity there, isn't there? He saw that the main thing was to get the French out so that they could begin to to heal the wounds and, and unite again. Yeah, he knew he knew what a task he had in front of him because once the French had gone, he still then had to deal with the English rebels. Yeah. There was no more, not much more fighting, but he had to persuade them to accept the king's peace and to move forward rather than carry on with their um, arguments. It was handy that there was Henry III now, and they could say, look, Henry didn't, the king didn't do this. That was the last king. So why don't we turn over a new slate and see where we go, you know, and just move forward? And he reissued. Magna Carta in December 1217 and the Charter of the Forest, which regulated the forest regulations and stopped the royal habit of acquiring royal forests and preventing people from hunting in the royal forests. They made sure that the royal forests went back to the same size as they were in Henry II's reign. So these two charters, the Charter of the Forest and the Magna Carta, were reissued. And it was like, right, this is the point now a new start, new king. The charter's in place. Did John have more than one son? I can't remember. He did, yes. He had another one, um, Richard, who later became Earl of Cornwall and King of the Romans. He was a couple of years younger than Henry. He was um, a loving brother sometimes, but would cause problems for Henry at other times. <laughs> I guess another major success of King John is that he had sons to, to succeed him. He did, yes. Because that, had he not had a son to succeed him, that would have changed the whole nature of that Baron's War and the end of it, probably. It would. It really would. And, I mean, it would have strengthened Louis's position as well because Louis was married to John's niece, so she could have claimed to be John's heir if John didn't have sons. John ha has now got two clear achievements. One, he had sons, and two, he died at the right time. <laughs> he died at the right time. <laughs> uh, History has not been kind to King John, has it really? It hasn't, no. I don't think... I, I, was, looking at, I was looking at what historical fiction writers are, have, have said about John, and um, to my surprise, it's only really uh, in relatively modern times that, that he's been vilified at every turn, really. It sort of starts, I think, with, with Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, where uh, John is, is definitely painted as the villain. Mm. But I was astonished to find that in the Elizabethan period, there were a number of plays. Obviously, there was Shakespeare's King John, but there were a number of other plays about King John. And, and the, the theme of these plays was that John was a beleaguered king, which is which is how you've you've painted him, really. Uh, but they they actually he was a kind of Protestant hero. Obviously, he wasn't a Protestant, but uh, because he he at various times in his reign uh, appeared to be something of a bulwark against the papacy. And of course, in Protestant Elizabethan England, the Pope was the arch enemy. So it's funny how the perspective of that age sees John in a completely different light 
there's no mention of Magna Carta or uh, civil liberties or anything like that, <laughs> not in the Elizabethan period. But yeah, it's only in relatively modern times that uh, John has, has been universally painted as basically a cruel, uh, unpleasant and unsuccessful king. I was amused by the fact that um, some historical fiction writers leave the reader in no doubt before they've opened the book how they see King John and the classic one is Jean Plady's book about John, novel about John, which is entitled The Prince of Darkness. So it's a bit, a bit of a spoiler alert there if you're not sure about John before you read that one. It's interesting to to get some context on that that final part of the reign, because so much emphasis is put on the first sort of nine tenths of the reign, whereas in fact I guess the end of the reign is is sort of the most important point, really. Well, yes, if John hadn't died when he did, we could have a king. We could have had a King Louis, and then a sixteen more Louis like Cranstead, or eighteen more Louis like Cranstead. Um, but because he died when he did, when his son was young enough to not be associated with John's crimes, for want of a better word, it meant that men could rally round. William Longsbay came back to the royalist side once John had died. Yeah. Um, William de Warren came back um, just after the Battle of Lincoln. So, they, you know, they were already coming back once, Hen once John died and Henry was on the throne. You were getting this trickle of barons coming back to the royalist side, to Henry's side. And um, by the Battle of Lincoln, William Marshall Jr., who had been firmly in the rebel camp, was back with his dad. It must have helped the royalist cause for people to see such notable people returning to Henry III. And well, if if Longspay can do it, then maybe we should as well. You know, the trickle becomes a flood in the end. Yeah, and it, it's what strikes me though is that, uh, and sort of starting from the point where we did at the beginning, which is that I don't know much about it, and I'm not sure that I, I might be the only one who doesn't know anything about it. But I suspect that lots of people don't know much about these years. Mm. And yet, when you talk about pivotal moments in English history, this seems like a pretty big one, really. Well, Magna Carta itself is seen as not just a pivotal moment in English history, but a pivotal moment in world history. The Magna Carta itself is used in so many other charters and constitutions throughout the world. The 1791 Bill of Rights in the US and the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights all use Magna Carta as the basis. Yeah, yeah. But in the 13th century, it was issued in 1215, reissued in 1217, and again in 1225, when Henry III achieved his majority. It was used by Simon de Montfort in the Second Barons' War in the 1264-65 rebellions, and I think it was reissued once in the reign of Edward I. But then it seems to have been forgotten. And when you said that the Elizabethans didn't bother mentioning Magna Carta, it's because at that point, nobody was mentioning Magna Carta. It wasn't seen as this great charter that it's seen as now. It was revived in the 17th century during the English Civil Wars. And since then, it's just grown and grown in significance. But actually, after the 13th century, for 300 years, it was considered insignificant and unnecessary necessary and more or less forgotten about. In a sense, whilst Magna Carta has been seen as this very important, pivotal moment, 
and a step towards uh, greater equality and so on. For England in particular, the pivotal moment is not Magna Carta at all. It's the fact that they are not taken over by a French king at that point. Yeah, Louis, if he'd actually succeeded, we'd have just been a satellite of a great French empire. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally changes the whole perspective of the next century or two, doesn't it? Yeah, and when you think about it, it might have changed everything, you know, with France ruling France and England, Wales would have ended up being subjected just like it probably just like it was by Edward the First. But Scotland would have also been a target in the end. And when you haven't just got England, you've got the power of England and France behind you. I'm not sure Scotland would have actually been able to resist like it did. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. No Agincourt, no Cressy, no no Hundred Years' War. But of course, you never know. I mean, we're we're in the realms of, of fiction or fantasy there. But it is an interesting thought that uh, that that moment where they managed to to wrest control back from Louis does seem to have a major significance. Yeah. And I think what we wanted to achieve was not to be talking about John and Magna Carta or John being a horrible man all the time, more, more to get a different perspective on it. Mm. We hope we've, we've given listeners uh, a rather different perspective on the end of King John and how important the events were to what happened in England for the next 100 or 200 years. I think this has been a really interesting take on it, that Magna Carta is significant, but so is the fact that we had this French prince trying to invade England and we managed to see him off. And that actually, you know, sets the stage for generations for the relationship between England and France. Yeah. People might think, oh, well, well, that's a bit, you know, that wouldn't have happened or it wouldn't have been like that. But if you think about after the Norman conquest, the Norman barons coming over to England, English yeah. and Norman barons having lands in both places, having commitment in both places, as we spoke about earlier, then it's perfectly possible that you could have had a, a similar kind of uh, relationship between England and Normandy and France and so on in those years afterwards. Yeah, I think so. I think it's interesting also, we didn't mention this, but the fact that they did invite a French prince over just 10 years after they'd lost their Norman lands. We're thinking of it now as them them inviting a French prince who had always been a distant person, but they were used to being indirectly owing fealty to the King of France. So it wasn't like they were inviting an invader. It was somebody who they'd known and had a relationship with for centuries because they were Normans, Anglo-Normans, rather than just English. Yeah, they weren't They weren't inviting the enemy no. as such. That They were inviting someone who, they, as you say, they already had some respect for, perhaps some contact with. Again, that changes the way we need to look at it, I think. Yeah. You have to remember that they were familiar with the French laws, justices, you know, they Normandy was part of France, so they were familiar with the language. It was something that they wouldn't have actually seen as being a total betrayal of England. 
Didn't they still uh, use French at the court? Yeah, Norman French, but French, yeah. Uh, the, the French was the language of the English court until... Ed, I was thinking Edward III. Was the, was the was he the first... Was it Edward III? ...reign where they used English? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's a long way off. It's really quite important to remember, isn't it, that in that period we've been talking about, England is, is not the England of three or four hundred years later, the Elizabethan times and so on. It's a, it's a, a blend of Anglo-Norman cultural aspects language laws and so on it was part of the continent you know as far as they were concerned they always had the english channel there but that just meant getting on a boat to get to your other lands it wasn't the border it is now no, it's a very, it's a really good point, and I think it's again something that people wouldn't wouldn't be aware of even now. It's basically Anglo-Norman. When we look at historical figures, we tend to see them as who they ended up being. You know, bad King John, um, Henry VIII kills wives, all that kind of thing. You don't realise that just like a person develops through life and becomes somebody different through their life through their actions and what's happened to them England has developed in much the same way you know it's grown it didn't have the same identity it does now that it had um in the 11th 12th and 13th centuries it took a while <laughs> so plenty of food for thought there Derek thanks very much for um indulging my um passion for the early 13th century and being able to let me talk about Nicola a bit and William Marshall. Well, I've learned a lot. <laughs> Possibly some listeners have as well. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Some interesting ideas in there. So thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Do join us next time when we will be having a very special guest joining us, which actually follows on from this discussion, really, because we will be having Elizabeth Chadwick with us to tell us about the greatest knight, William Marshall. I'm looking forward to that. That sounds really, really good. Yeah, me too. I didn't realise that we've actually, it's actually going to follow on from this. If we're not careful, this will appear to be planned. <laughs> well, well, so it's goodbye from me, Sharon Bennett Connolly. And from me, Derek Burks, and hope you'll be listening to us again soon. Mm -hmm.